0: Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule.
1: From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio... This is Early Risers, Waking Up to Racial Equity in Early Childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey, with Think Small in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This podcast is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism. So this is our final episode of Season 2. And for our season finale, I wanted to have a conversation about the human brain and what happens in the brain when children start learning about race and racism. As we talk to children about all things, including race and racism, there's something that happens in our brains. And I wanted to understand what that is. Our brains are miraculous and mysterious, and there's so much we don't know about how our brains work. But we do know this. Most brain growth happens by the time a child turns three. That's why those first 1,000 days of a child's life are so crucial for their development. We also know that the human brain is good at recognizing patterns. That's how we figure out the world. And it's why humans have been able to adapt and survive over millions of years. But if recognizing patterns is the brain's superpower, then we also need to recognize that it can lead to forming racial biases from a very young age.
0: Race is a learned construct, and it's a pattern that certainly kids can recognize, but it's not really attached in the beginning into any negative connotations or things like that. But that changes extremely early.
1: My guest on today's episode of Early Risers is Dr. Damian Fair. He's a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Minnesota, where he co-directs the Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain. His research looks at patterns that develop in our brain from infancy into young adulthood. Beyond being a brain researcher, Damien Fair is also a parent who, like so many of us, had to figure out how to talk to his own kids about race and racism. He grew up in a mixed-race family in southeastern Minnesota. So we started our conversation by talking about his early memories of learning about race as a child. I just want to get started learning a little bit about yourself. I, I learned that you grew up in Winona, Minnesota. Yes. yes. Um, so tell us about the first time you learned about race. Maybe a parent or another adult talked to you about race. Like, how old were you? Oh, boy. It's hard for me to actually remember
0: um, when I first um, started really kind of internalizing the idea of race and, and and what it is. That doesn't mean I was not affected by it. And we can talk more about the neuroscience around that. But for me personally, it's hard to remember when it was. I was born from a, a father from the Bahamas and a, a mother from Minnesota, white mother from Minnesota. And um, they split when I was very young. But I'd say our family was full of at that time, when I was quite young, when my grandmothers was around was was full of a very eclectic group of adopted children from Native American families and black children and white children. Like, I would say when we mm-hmm. after we moved to Winona, probably my my first very kind of explicit conscious awareness that um I was different actually than a lot of i mean i'm not sure if Embraid knows the demographics of Winona, Minnesota, but it's not the most diverse you know part of the state, and so there's a time and my mother and my my stepfather, now father, were kind of going through school and hard times and trying to work through on developing their careers. And we lived in a, a trailer park and there was lots of kids. You know, they were, we were all running around kind of wild, you know, all over the place. And during that time, you know, even my closest friends were very explicit about racial you know, ideals towards me, calling me n- and, and having really like, terrible events about slavery and things like you know all types of stuff when I was quite young, mm-hmm. and I mostly my personality, partly probably because of my upbringing, kind of brushed it aside. I didn't even think about it. it and, and the more mm-hmm. I kind of look back on that time now, I'm like, wow, that was really bad, <laughs> you know. It's like, wow. but at the time, you know, I didn't really understand how to handle it, and it was really kind of a it just kind of blew by me. Now, I had very supportive family, you know, and so they'd hear about these things mm-hmm. and we would talk about it and they would be calling families and screaming at it about, you know, like, you yeah, hide there, mm-hmm. you know. They, and that's right. when I probably <laughs> first became really conscious of it. We had some of the initial conversations about it, about how backwards, you know, some of the thought process was for people in my immediate vicinity where I lived. You know, that was in middle school time, somewhere around there. And But that's probably when I first became ex- explicitly aware that, you know, that I was different.
1: Yeah. I also grew up in Minnesota. But I can definitely relate to those experiences and, you know, at some point just having that realization, oh, I am different. You know, and then having those racist um words and images and then like oh yeah okay this is an issue this is (laughs) this is not normal this is not good this is you know just having that awakening and that that realization um but you you grew up and you kind of found your calling in neuroscience and so first of all tell us what that is what do you do and how did you kind of fall in love with the work that you're doing
0: so I'm I'm a neuroscientist and I, what they call a cognitive neuroscientist. So I study the brain and how it works and how it relates to complex behaviors. I use techniques like MRI and other non-invasive tools to examine the brain from all stages of development. So from the beginning, early infancy, all the way through young adulthood, and we study various types of atypical, atypical. Brain trajectories, so atypical trajectories like ADHD and autism and other mental health disorders, and then a, a huge chunk mm-hmm. of what we do is just trying to understand the patterns that exist in the brain as it develops over time. Typically, um, I would say my road to where I'm at was uh, was also not normal. <laughs> I was in fifth grade. I, I learned about I remember something about the brain. I wasn't that great of a student back then. But I just was fascinated about it and, for whatever reason, wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And I remember, partly because I wasn't such a great student at the time, but I remember it was in fifth grade, that the teacher was asking, me, what does everybody want to be? You know, what's, what's your future? And I said, I want to be a neurosurgeon. And the teacher started laughing at me. <laughs> yeah. What? They started laughing at me and they said, "Well, do you know what a neurosurgeon does?" And I, I and I didn't really, you know, but I said, "They there's neurons <laughs> in the brain and then they cut them away, you know." Um, which is pretty close. But at the end of the day, you know, like I I kind of look back at that time and I say like I came pretty close. <laughs>
1: you know. So, um, so you know I work in the early childhood field and we are famous for saying that about 80% of brain development or brain growth happens by the time a child turns three. And I don't know if that statistic is exactly right, but it's something like that. A lot of the brain development happens in the very early years. So can you walk us through kind of what is happening in those first three years in the brain and how does it develop?
0: Yeah, that's phenomenal. I mean, I here's how I usually like to talk about it and... I'm not exactly sure where that 80% number comes from, but I would say that it's a good way to kind of tell the story because the reality is the brain is made up of a bunch of neurons, which are the cells that kind of are connecting and communicating essentially electrical pulses, which allows you to think and move and uh, and breathe, you know? And then there's a lot mm-hmm. of support cells that are support those types of neurons, although my neuroscience colleagues will probably be upset that I call them support cells because they probably they do a lot more than just supports. But <laughs> altogether, there's about 200 billion of cells. You know, it's about the amount of, you know, stars in the Milky Way or number of, you know, galaxies in the universe, huh. all in everybody's brain. And as far as the neurons go, you know, by the time you're born, and certainly by the time you're around two years old, almost all of them that you're ever going to have for the rest of your life are there. So the mm. brain
1: doesn't... Re- so you don't get
0: any more There, There's that. a couple caveats to that. So there's a, there's a part of the brain called the hippocampus that's important for typically people think about it in terms of generating memories and identifying patterns and things like that, which generates some new cells. And a couple of places in the cerebellum, which is in the bottom of your brain, that's important for coordinating movements and coordinating even thoughts and monitoring mistakes and things like that. Um, but for the most part, you're going to have most of your cells that you ever have in your, in your entire life are going to be sitting in place by the time you're born, and at least mm. by the age of two. So what that means is that the brain doesn't really develop like you're building a house, right, where you put up the walls, right, and then you add in the electrical, then you put on the lights and the windows, and you keep building it up. The brain is, develops more like a sculpture, Right. So, where mm. you have a big rock and you start chiseling it to make the statue. Mm. So, it's a very different concept. And that has a lot, that means how you think about brain development, particularly those early times while those neurons are going to their final resting place from the time of conception all the way to that birth and two years old, mm. right? Two or three years old, mm-hmm. those first 1,000 days, right? We call it, right? Are extremely mm-hmm. important because that is the rock that you're going to chisel your development for the rest of your life from, right? Mm. So, um, so, you know, those early periods of, of life are extremely important for that exact reason. And that means the level of nutrition and the amount of stress and the different types of experiences as, as your rock is being built from conception all through those first 1,000 days is an extremely important time of development.
1: This is just um, fascinating to me, you know, and I, I think about like some of the other conversations we've had on Early Rises and we talk about how young, very young children, two, three, they are learning and, they're, and they learn by categorizing things. And so they are categorizing and trying to put things in, in place as they're developing. And so sometimes they will um, mention, uh, you know, somebody's skin color is a different color, hair texture is different. Um we as adults are placing some kind of judgment on that, but the child is just noticing a difference and trying to categorize it. So, what can you say about how the brain does that categorization and what happens when a child, especially a young child is receiving negative images, r- negative racial images, negative racial language, how does that also affect the way the brain develops?
0: Well, you're absolutely right. I could, you should come to my lectures and explain all this stuff because you do, you do much better <laughs> job than I do. It's like, wow, she's kind of, <laughs> it's amazing. So, uh, but you're absolutely right. So the, the brain is designed to figure out and characterize patterns. That's what it does. You know, so, I mean, everybody remembers the first time they learn to read, or maybe you don't remember, but you can kind of piece it together, right? Where you, yeah. you take a bunch of letters, right? And then you sound out each letter until you can understand the word, right? Mm-hmm. And then you keep doing that. And over time, your brain begins to combine letters. So instead of seeing like B-R as B-R, you say B-R. Right. And it just combines and then it will start combining words and then it starts combining phrases. Right. So now as an adult, when you read, you don't read the letters at all. You read the patterns that you understand. And that's, that's in essence how the brain figures out the world. And a good example of this is, so it may be some, some surprise to everybody, right? That from the almost unlimited amount of information that kind of comes before our eyes, right? Mm. The amount that kind of gets back to the middle part of the brain, which is called the thalamus, the first thing that the ganglion cells in the back of the eye touches at a place called the thalamus. And there's a, only pieces of the information from the visual world actually reached back there. It's on the order of like what you might see on a, a standard definition TV. Even the visualization, that's even from your eye. By the time it hits the back of your eye, it's only, it's like a Blu ray or HD TV. By the time that information <laughs> gets back to your visual cortex in the way back, Now we're talking about the order of a visual phone, you know, like the phones they have in war where it's like using, you know, it's like really grainy and and all the way in the back. And and the information that actually makes it to your consciousness, you can't even make video out of it, right? But still, your visual experience of the world, it looks much better than even Blu-ray DVD, (laughs) right? Right, right. right. So how does that happen? Well, the way it happens is your brain has learned over time to understand specific patterns in the world. And so it Mm -hmm. provides you essentially a hallucination (laughs) of Mm -hmm. what the actual world looks like and what people look like and all this kind of stuff. It's essentially guessing. And that's one of the reasons why magicians have a job, right? It's because they can essentially trick the brain's pattern recognizers to think they're seeing something else, you know? So that's essentially what you've described is exactly how the brain works. Now, when it comes to race, you're absolutely right. Race is, is a learned construct. And it's one of these things, it's a pattern that certainly kids can recognize. And it's a pattern, but it's not really attached to any, in the beginning, in, into any negative connotations or things like that. Right. But that changes extremely early. So there's a, a some very classic set of experience in psychology. I'm going to get the name wrong, but I think it's called the impl- Implicit Association Test, or the I-A-T. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So it, was, it started out of Harvard, I think, in the early 2000s, and what they were clearly able to show in, in adults is that the speed at which we can cogitate or recognize objects is associated with how congruent um, other information around it is. So like if I'm asked to differentiate between, I could say, like a chair and a boat, if the chair is associated with a table right, then I'll be able to associate that chair faster than I would otherwise.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, in the implicit association test, you can essentially pair races, like faces of specific races, with words that are either good or bad. And what you can clearly show in adults is that black faces are associated with bad words. And that the mm. speed at which you can respond to faces or those words increases if it's paired with bad words. And that wow. is particularly evident within, like, let's say, the white race. So we know that that occurs. And even in other races, including African-Americans, you can see that same effect. It's not as great as within the white race, but it's mm-hmm. there. Now, by the time, I believe, you're six Five or six, that effect is there. Hmm. So even though you don't start off understanding race and how its its connotations, by the time you're six, it's it's there and it's just as strong as it is an adult. Now, explicitly, wow. what you feel like, how you're affected or biased by race actually goes down over time. You know, so people explicitly, when you ask them how biased they feel in regard to race that actually decreases as over time as you get older but implicitly mm. where you're forcing them you can tell cognitively you can test it you know that is actually and those kind of tests folks can even do online today you can go and see your your own score you know on some of these things right
1: and so that's the implicit way so they people are not conscious of that's right this bias that they have And related
0: to some of the events that have occurred here, there's some other fascinating experiments that have been done. So another one is called semantic priming. So let's say I have, um, I need to respond as fast as I can to anything, let's say the word nurse, right? Mm -hmm. If I flash a word like doctor right before my target, which is the word nurse, then the speed at which I can actually to respond to the word nurse mm-hmm. is faster. I can do it much faster mm-hmm. it, if it was, it was the word doctor before versus if it was the word table, for example. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's called semantic priming. It's called it's because of what they call the spreading activation um, in the brain around the patterns in the brain. Mm-hmm. Now, these experiments that have also been done have been shown that if I can do the same type of priming example with faces of races, right? So hmm. let's say I'm going to, I have the word table. And I can prime it with either a white face or a black face, okay? Hmm. Now, if I do the word table, what you see is that, you know, race doesn't affect it much. But if I put that word, my target is a gun or a knife, then I'll respond faster to the knife if it's a black face. Wow. Yeah. Really? So these kind of implicit, you know, these are, you can't help it. These are things that are, these psychological tests that there's no hiding. You can't, there's no question there, right? (laughs) Um, They're embedded in our psyche and they develop um, based on the extent literature that I know extremely, extremely early. And I have some examples of this, even in my own life, you know? So my son, he's now, he's 16, but when he was starting school and he was in preschool, um, he was—he's no, Look, he's been very privileged over his, over his life. My, my <laughs> wife and I are complaining all the time. It's like, geez, these kids, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but you know, he's in a very good school in Portland, and Portland is a very similar demographic. Probably a little bit worse as far as diversity than even the Minnesota. Most of the students in his class are white. You know, in his preschool mm-hmm. class, and he befriends a very one of his best friends. are still still—they're still great friends now. And mm-hmm. when we first met his parents, who are also friends of ours now, you know, his father came up to me and said, but I thought he said he wants to be African like Arameas, like you're, my son. And I was like, oh, man, we already started oh, okay. this, you know? <laughs> and then I introduced him to my wife. And I said, oh, it, their son wants to be African like Arameas. And, and he, he said, no, 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 I didn't say African. I said he wants to be American like Arameas, you know? Oh. And I said, American? I thought you said African. He's like, no, no, no. He thinks he said he wants to be American. I said, Well, what? What is it about my son that makes him think that he's more American than him? You know. Right? Huh. <laughs> and he said, he said, well, he thought this is there are four, right? Yeah. He thought that the only way you could be American, this is two thousand eight, is if you looked like the president of the United States. <laughs> And so at first you think it's kind of funny. Like I always tell the story, it's like, it's, it's funny. But then if you actually yeah. think deeply about it, and Barack Obama, of yeah. course, is the black president, is that you can see how, like these folks in positions of power, how you begin to develop those biases extremely early. And because yes. of our the structure of our society, they set in very quickly. And like th- in this example, can you imagine how many kids who are not – of the gender and race of the last X amount of yes. presidents thought yeah. the same thing, you know? And this is how this stuff begins to set in so so very
1: early. I'm Diane Halsey, and you're listening to Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. My guest today is Dr. Damien Fair, He's a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Minnesota. We've been talking about how we learn by forming patterns in our brains from a very young age and how those patterns can sometimes lead to racial biases. So what insights can you give when when thinking about how the brain develops? Um, How can parents and caregivers what should they know about uh, how to talk to children, how to speak to them, how to help this brain develop?
0: Well, it's a, you know, so I'll tell you another, another story here. I mean, one of the things that I really like to talk about is about how your perception of yourself is an extreme, extremely high indicator of how you will do in your everyday tasks in life and Things of this nature, and there's actually a lot of data on this mm. that neuroscience can talk about, yeah, so there's this really um fascinating set of experiments by this professor named Claude Steele. He talks about the idea of a stereotype threat, and the way this experiment initially started was I'm not exactly sure exactly sure of the timing, but i if I'm remembering right, it started with women. Consistently underperforming in math tests. I think it was, I think he was at the University of Michigan at the time. And mm-hmm. it was hard to understand because you have all of these women who are all, they have all the same credentials as the men and they come into the, into college and theoretically it should be the best. The problem with at the time and, it, and today, and it's even still today is that there's this perception that women should just be worse at math. So he, mm-hmm. he had this thought that, well, maybe the reason why they're underperforming is simply because they're under this anxiety and threat that they're supposed to do worse. You know, so one of the pieces of advice is just understanding these types of, of data and is building the confidence in removing that threat, you know, that yes. you're any different or any worse or anything, you know, That what the is that kind of breaking that narrative is critical. You know, if we're going to try to advance our capabilities, we need to be able to utilize all the talents that exist in our society, right? Absolutely. And the only way we can maximize that is if we remove the barriers that are purely constructed out of thin hair from our our history and our society. And so, you know, yes. these are some of the pieces of advice I like to give the parents is that like, we have to make sure our kids believe, you know, and, and not to... Cocky believe, you know, I'm better, you know, but to really, truly, internally believe that that they're no different um, than anybody else.
1: What you're saying is so profound because, you know, it's important for all children to develop this um, sense of themselves that they know who they are and they know what they're capable of. But what often happens is because of the racism in our society, oftentimes um, Black children or other children of color develop a sense of themselves that's less than. Uh, And then exactly what you're saying happens. Then sometimes they end up performing not at the level that we know that they can perform because they're receiving the same racist images that everyone else is receiving. And then they start to internalize them and believe them about themselves.
0: That's exactly right.
1: So what you're saying is very, very, very profound. Um, You know, I'm curious, you know, you are a father, too. You have two children, right? Yes, so what have you learned about brain development um, and through your work being a neuroscientist that has affected the way you parent oh. your children?
0: <laughs> That's a good question. You know, it's funny. I mean, I, I I often find myself uh struggling because, you know, my neuroscience brain tells me very specifically, you know, in some cases yeah. how I should be parent and my parent brains telling me get out of bed you know <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean so, I can relate <laughs> you know, like, so, my 16 year old he's adolescent he sleeps like a lot you know <laughs> I got two of them too Yeah, <laughs> I'm like you're sleeping too much man get out of bed you know but my understanding from understanding neuroscience is that dude, he's sleeping exactly the amount he's supposed to you know yeah. Like there's supposed to sleep at this at this particular stage in development, which is another very critical time. And so, you know, I do catch myself quite often on that front. I mean, some of the other pieces that I would say that that I would have affected my own parenting is that is to understand that the capabilities of our kids are way more than you know. Yeah. It is, you know, there's all these amazing kind of experiments. You know, there's these experiments on memory where you know, it's called working memory or short-term memory, right? Where, you know, you're remembering phone numbers, you're remembering – you can remember very short periods of time. You usually can cluster things in groups of three or four, which yeah. is why our phone numbers are groups of three yeah, clusters, right. right? That's why. It's because of psychology we know that our short-term memory, that's the capacity. That's it. And we know that you – develop your capacity for de- how much you can remember in your short-term memory develops over time. So what it tells you is that half the part of development is developing strategies, you know, and the ability to do some of the tasks that we think are slated for much older, oftentimes built by school. Right. Our school, we have our school system set up and that we kind of internalize like, well, that's what you learn in fourth and third and fifth and sixth. Yeah. So that must be the time. Mm -hmm. Right. It's kind of. Right. But it's not aggregate. Like a lot of this stuff, they can
1: learn much, much earlier, you know. Absolutely. Um how have you um, talked to your own children about race? What are some of those conversations you may have had with them when they were younger?
0: We've had various conversations about race with our kids. I mean, and some of them have been pretty hard. I mean, so we moved here right from Portland in July of uh, 2020. Hmm. So
1: interesting time to. There was here. a lot of stuff going on.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> And my son is 15. He's, you know, just about to start driving, right? Yeah. In Minnesota. Yes. And so the stressful time is during the pandemic. And of course, there's, you know, the news with Floyd and, you know, well, all the news, right? Was, mm-hmm. um, scary. So we had, you know, we had to sit down and talk quite a bit about, okay, when you're driving, you know what do you if you get pulled over, what do you do? you know how does mm-hmm. that gonna work and talking about like you, peop you know folks may see you different than some of your friends, and you, you have to you have to learn how to respond and you, you know very different than even mm-hmm. when I was a kid growing up, you know some of the things that I was taught to do, I would never teach my kids to, to do today, <laughs> like go to your wallet and take out your i d and get it ready for the police officer no don't do anything, <laughs> don't move, you know. No sudden movement. Exactly. You know, (laughs) things like that were very tough. We went to the George Floyd Memorial. We we did that like the first week Mm -hmm. we got here.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, my daughter, who was eight at the time,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. she mused about painting our faces white before we got there so the police wouldn't hurt us. Oh my. And, (sighs) you know, those, Conversations about we're going to be okay—they're very tough because it's hard to explain. Um, So, on one hand, you're saying it may not be okay; don't make a move. On the other hand, you're trying to say it's okay—you're going to be all right. (laughs) Um, The the conversations are very hard, and there's there's been other examples where we've had to, you know, kind of sit down as a, a family and go through some difficult. Um, discussions, but again, I think for the most part, we've tried to err on um, trying to make sure that they understand that they're valued, yeah, that they're no different. In fact, they're better than everybody, <laughs> you know. So, so that they maintain a level of, of confidence as they kind of traverse through their own journey.
1: Damien Fair is the Redleaf Endowed Director of the Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain at the University of Minnesota. In 2020, he received an award from the MacArthur Foundation, also known as the Genius Grant, for his work on child brain development. Again, this is our last episode of season two, and for all of you listeners who've been following our journey this season, I want to thank you. I also want to thank each of my guests this season who've helped me delve even deeper into the importance of having conversations with young children about race and racism. I have really enjoyed each conversation and appreciate each person who has spent time with me on this podcast. Before we officially end Season 2, we want to get your input about Season 3, which will come out sometime this spring. Is there a conversation about race and early childhood you want to hear on Early Risers? Or a guest you'd like to recommend? Email us your ideas at earlyrisers at npr.org. In the meantime, you can visit npr.org backslash early risers to listen to all of our season one and season two episodes and download our discussion guide. As always, for more tips and resources on how to talk with young children about race and racism, visit littlemomentscount.org. This episode of Early Risers was produced by Nancy Rosenbaum, Our technical director is Alex Simpson, and our executive producer is Andrea Bork. Kaviesh Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. Special thanks to the whole team at Little Moments Count and NPR. I'm your host, Diane Halsey. Thanks for listening.